Welcome to OsteoTalk, an Osteopathy Australia podcast dedicated to delivering clinically relevant education for osteopaths to learn, connect and collaborate by drawing on a wealth of knowledge seen in practice as well as experts in other disciplines. Join us as we explore real clinical issues through interviews and discussion with top practitioners in Australia and internationally. For more learning and development resources, visit our website at www.osteopathy.org.au. Welcome to the Osteo Talk podcast, brought to you by Osteopathy Australia. I'm your host, Emily Bergman. Today, we have the pleasure of hearing from Dr. Steve Deneen again. In episode one of the podcast, Steve talked about running injury development and prevention. Today, we'll be exploring osteopathic biomechanical training and management considerations in a few common running injuries. Thank you, Steve, for taking the time out of your busy week for another interview. No, it's a pleasure to be back and uh, thanks for having me. We've had a few fails along the way. This is third time lucky. We've had some um, child and NBN sabotages, but we finally made it. So thank you, Steve, for the, the commitment. Yeah, um, thanks for putting up for my lack of ability in those areas. <laughs> look, the NBN's not your fault. We've had some great feedback from episode one, so I'm really looking forward to diving deeper into some running injuries together. Do you have a particular favourite you'd like to start with? Yeah, I reckon probably the favourite injury I like to sort of uh, talk about is the ones that aren't as common. Well, not common, just commonly not treated. So I'm looking at a bit of a tip posterior, which is really common amongst the runners because it's the muscle that really helps you when you get up running on your toes and you start running fast. It starts to play up. Um, tip posterior runs alongside the uh, inside of the tibial bone, but also attaches into the inside of the foot. And I think a lot of people often mistake this sort of an injury for a few different things. Like, you know, I'm getting a tight foot, it's a bit of plantar fasciitis. Um, it's not always that. It's actually tip posterior that I find that when people start loading, whether it's more volume or faster running, this is the muscle that gets put under the load and uh, causes a lot of problems. So I've had a lot of success treating tip posterior early on, um, settling that one down. And when that's settled down, I find a lot of other problems go away. Um, tip posterior, you know, for the average person, it might be known as the old shin, shin splint muscle, um, but it's a lot more to it than just a sore inside of the shin. It causes shin pain. It causes uh, ankle issues. It causes foot problems. So, yeah, I find if you tip posterior kind of runs across that ankle joint from the foot to the lower leg, and that's why I really love treating it because you get some really good results from it. Great, and it's certainly one of those injuries that um, can become quite chronic and it's very frustrating for runners. Is there anything you look for sort of specifically in your osteopathic assessment, any somatic dysfunctions or lesions you'll commonly find associated with a tip post problem? Yeah, so when I get some of the tip posts here, I kind of look at the things around it, the things that you can afford to miss early on, things you can't. So, you know, really bad shin pain. Well, yeah, it might be tip post here. It could also be uh, the start of a bony injury. So one of the things I make sure with tip post here is early on, I check out if there's any, you know, bone reactions going on through the tip uh, and see if that's a problem. The second thing I look at is uh, ankle issues and foot problems because tip post here is not too far um, missing the attachment of the uh, navicular and, a navicular stress fracture is probably one of the worst foot fractures you can get. So really the first thing with tip posterior is rule that bone. Um, if you can't rule that bone, just keep it at the back of your mind anyway. Uh, the other part of that is you might not have a bone injury with tip posterior, but if tip posterior continues to play up, it might lead to bone stuff as well. So really when I get the tip posterior, um, the bone stuff stays at the back of my mind and I just double check that. 
along with tib posterior, I look at the uh, ankle mobility. So I find with tib posterior, a lot of ankles start to invert a bit. So you get the uh, subtalus sort of roll in a bit and that changes also the biomechanics and loading. Uh, and then also calf and Achilles. So with tib posterior, the, the idea for me is really freeing up the ankle joint, mobilizing the foot, um, getting that moving really freely. I'll often do some uh, dry needling or some massage through the actual tip posterior muscle. I'll work on the muscles around the air, which is calves and Achilles and tib anterior, which we'll speak about later. Um, so yeah, tip posterior is a good muscle and it's one I don't treat in isolation. Rule out bone injuries and make sure you get on top of those ankle mobility stuff. Okay. In terms of strength discrepancies, do you find it's more that the the muscle is getting overloaded or you know, is there an underlying weakness? Uh, more often than not, it's the overloading. Um, it's, I guess the way I look at it sometimes is you look at an injury like a tip posterior, is it it's overloaded? The athlete's doing too much running. They're now running I don't know, 50Ks a week and they're doing a lot of fast work. Are they now doing some track running? So they're doing the spikes. Are they doing more speed work? Is it they're overloaded too much or do you look at the other way is that they're unconditioned so in terms of well you know what the muscle's not strong enough to do it anyway so it's a bit of a catch-22 i think whether it's um unconditioned or it's overloaded in my view it's generally a bit of both so if i was looking at a beginner runner you generally think it's the unconditioned side of it so if someone's starting to get into running you're probably thinking it's going to be the chances are that they haven't done a lot of running so their muscles need to condition and get stronger and adapt uh, when you look at people that have been running for a long time, it's probably more of an overload injury where while they are pretty good condition in the lower legs, they're just doing some training that's actually stirring it up. And then, then people that are sort of in the middle, it's a little bit of, bit of both, if that makes sense. Yep. If you were assessing someone's running technique, what might you be looking for that, that might be overloading the tip post? So one of the best ways to look at tip posts is I'm looking at um, – you get your client and you look at them in their shoes. That's great. Look at their shoes. Then you get them in bare feet standing in front of you. And I'm looking to see what the medial arch does. Uh, a lot of athletes in the past have had a lot of tip posterior problems and it makes their arch collapse. And as a result, they've been given orthotics. Uh, oh, your arch has collapsed. But really, tip posterior has got so tight and fatigued, it's sort of given away. So I actually look at um, getting people standing up barefoot. I look at their arch position. I feel along their shin. And then I also look at their midfoot. Has their midfoot started to get so stiff at the way they're landing? And that's when I look at with athletes running generally is going, there's one thing having you M jog around, but when you run fast, you very rarely hit the back of your foot. So if I ask you to do a couple of fast 400s, you'll be running on your midfoot, forefoot, so your heel doesn't really hit the ground. So you're actually foot biomechanics change when you actually run faster. And that's one thing I look at when people are jogging. Like while it may look all great when you're jogging, because you're hitting your heel, when the athlete's doing faster running, things start to change. Um, if anyone out there has seen those athletic spikes or the uh, track runners wear, most of them don't have a heel plate because they don't land on their heel. It's all about that mid to forefoot. So that's one of the things with tip posterior is when you start landing more on your midfoot and your forefoot, well, tip posterior is one of the areas that takes a bit more of the load and also helps propel that midfoot forward. Okay. So can you talk us through some other management strategies. So as well as your osteopathic treatment, is there anything else you recommend? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I'll do my osteo treatment. That's great. We'll adjust, we'll treat, we'll do what we've got to do. But then away from that, I'll be looking at other things like, okay, when you go home, do some spiky ball. Now with the spiky ball under the foot, 
the one place you don't want the spiky ball is under the heel of the foot. There's a nice little burst there, so you don't want to flare that up. But I got a lot of my patients to spiky ball, midfoot, forefoot, go things like that. Stretching is really good. Um, stretch uh, your soleus, stretch your gastroc, so your calf muscles, really good. But then you can actually just sort of change the position of your middle of your foot and actually get a bit more of a stretch through your tip posterior as well. Uh, another thing I do with a lot of athletes is say, look, your tip posterior is flaring up a little bit. I suggest them to get an old um, plastic cup that you drink out of, put some water in it, freeze it, and then bring it out of the freezer and massage down along tip posterior along the inside of your shin. So you're icing the inflamed, aggravated tip posterior while you're massaging it, and that's really good as well. Uh, you can also do it with a frozen ball. You can actually roll your foot on a frozen ball and it helps massage while ice it. So they're little things that we look at. In terms of strengthening, a lot of people get in the gym and really try and strengthen these muscles. If you've got an overload uh, muscle because you're training too fast, too much on it, I don't always see the point in actually trying to strengthen it. It's already tired from all your hard training. So I often say, look, massage it, release it, mobilize your ankle, stretch your calves. Um, and I actually suggest a little bit of barefoot running, just a couple of little bits of here and there and some nice good um, grass just to help also work those feet muscles to help support it. Okay, that's interesting. And what about, so I'll probably ask you for each injury. It's, it's, a bit of a, it's a bit of a tricky one when people ask, well, can I keep running? Do you try and keep them running to a degree? I, I probably keep most of my athletes running more than what most other practitioners do. I find there's a real um, deconditioning phase. So if you have started running, you haven't been much of a runner, you've started running and you're out and about, and after six weeks you get a sore shin, oh, my shin's flared up, my tip post is really sore. Okay, take four weeks off, let it all settle down. You're back to point A again. Start yeah. to run again and it's flared up. And you play a bit of game of tennis, flares up, you stop running, you de decondition. So I try and modify what they do. And that's probably one of the main things I do um, in my practice really well is I modify for most of my injuries. And my clients know that if I tell you to stop running, you know you need to stop running. Otherwise, I really modify things for them. Um, I think quite often people go, if I don't know what to do, just tell them to stop and you can't harm them. And while that's very true in terms of that tip posterior will settle down, you're going to harm them because the rest of their body's also deconditioned. They might start compensating the other leg. They might have an Achilles when they come back. Or that tip posterior weakens again. It settles down, but it weakens. So when you start running, you're playing the same problem again. And how do you determine what, you know, what sort of load they're able to do? So, yeah, someone says, well, can, you know, is it when the onset of pain occurs, you want to pull up before that? Like, how do you, what's your threshold there? Yeah, it's a bit of trial and error. Um, it's really hard to give you an exact science in terms of this is how much you can do. I just get back going to walk jogging or jogging. Depends how bad their symptoms are. Uh, do I think, look, tip posterior is just a little bit agitated, it's a little bit annoyed, then I'll probably get them to jog and go to softer surface, a little bit flatter, make sure you wear shoes, don't walk around the um, house bare feet because it loads it up as well. Or if I think, look, this is a pretty aggravated tip posterior, you've got to pull it right back. Or if I think, look, you're borderlining, probably now loading other areas, whether that be bone or the Achilles or the other leg, I might modify it. So it's really hard to say how much you pull someone back. Um, if you're not sure, I sort of do a bit of a guesstimate. I reckon, you know, you've gone from running 50 k's a week, we'll pull you back by 50%, even though I reckon I only need to pull you back 30%. So I'll probably pull back a little bit more and just say to them, look, just see how you go this week. And if you're not sure, give me a call how it's tracking along. Um, sometimes you've got to push through it. And a lot of runners will tell you if they stopped every time they had a niggle, they'd never start. Okay. 
Anything else you want to add about Tib Post before we move on to something else? Yeah, Tib Posterior, if you're not sure whether it's a Tib Posterior injury, whether it's more of a bone injury, um, we're very lucky in Australia, you know, it's easy to get a scan. Go get it scanned because if you're not sure, last thing you want to do is have someone, what you think is just Tib Posterior flared up, end up being a stress fracture and they get a stress fracture through their leg. So I think with this day and age, whether it's an MRI or even an ultrasound, check Tib Posterior, um, don't be afraid to sort of refer off and get an imaging as well done. What signs and symptoms would lead you down the track of thinking a bone stress injury? Yeah, so a really good example with my, and it's not, um, it's not 100%, but what I often do is go, if you've got, let's say, just tip posterior. So most tendon problems, they'll start off a little bit stiff and sore in the morning. Once you warm up, they actually generally start to feel a bit better. And then by the end of the sport, uh, end of the exercise, if you've done too much, you get sore again. And generally, um, after exercise, it pulls up pretty sore. So you find that, oh, you know what, it was pretty sore. Once I warmed up, it felt pretty good, but it was a little bit sore later on. That's a sign that, yeah, it's, it could be tendon related. With bone injuries, the more you do, the worse it feels. So it's not kind of like, oh, I was a bit sore and I warmed up and it felt really good. It almost starts out of the way. It wasn't too bad. And as I got into it, it got worse and worse and worse. So there's sort of little signs that you'll see that bones generally present a little bit different than what the tendons do. Um, and it's not 100%. That's just a good guide. And if I'm ever not sure, like I said before, I'll send up the imaging. I'll go, look, it might just be the tendon. It might just be the bone. And the other part of that too is I'll look at someone and say, look, you're doing your running at the moment. Um, I can send you off for a scan. It's $280 for an MRI. There might be a bit of a stress reaction in your bone going on. Or if you just go put in a moon boot for four weeks, we'll do the same thing anyway. So they might say, well, I'm not really training for anything. I'm happy to have a month off anyway. So I'll just go in a moon boot, just be precaution anyway. Or they go, no, I actually want to spend 280 just to double check it. And then if it isn't a scan, I want to keep, uh, if it isn't a bone injury, I'll keep going. Okay. You've got to weigh up what you, where your clients are at, really. What about night pain? So night pain is going to vary in terms of is it night pain after exercise or is it night pain and you've had a couple of days off? Is it night pain when you move? Is it night pain when you're at rest? So they're the things you've got to pick up. You know, stresses can really ache. They really can, they can ache at night, but some don't too. Um, tendon problems, you find by the end of a the day, there's enough inflammation in there from a day that can help. Uh, but normally in the morning when you wake up, the bones should generally feel better and the tendons should be a bit stiff and sore and take a bit to warm up. Okay. I'm trying to decide if I have an acute ITB syndrome or like a fibular bone stress injury and I'm, um, yeah, I'm 50-50. Okay. Um, if you hop on a single leg with a uh, stressy in the hip, it hurts straight away a fair bit, which should okay. anyway. As soon as we finish this, I'm going to start hopping on one leg. All right. Yeah. Um, maybe let's, let's have a bit of a chat about knee pain. Yeah, of course. So, Knee pain I find really fascinating, especially with runners. You've heard of runner's knee. Um, I guess the first division I go with knee pain is I'm looking at, is it a overuse injury like we spoke about before, you know, overuse running from doing too much. Is it one of those injuries or is it more of a degeneration? So you've got to always a bit, little bit, bit of both. So if someone's got a bit of a way of the, um, the knee, well, what can you do with that? If it's a bit of a tracking problems, a bit of degeneration, that's one side to deal with. If we look at today just playing knee injuries, I find most of the knee injuries in running are due with the patella and overloading the quads. So 
Um, quads, there's four muscles. The outside quads are generally stronger than the inside quads. As a result, the patella is dragged laterally rather than up and down. So when you get pretty tight, that's why the kneecap starts to shift outwards towards the IPTB, fascis lateralis, which means the um, under part of the patella uh, grinds on the femur. So that's running. When you look at that, the other part of that is to do with the quad muscle. So we're looking at that saying, the outside quad muscles are tighter than the inside, that causes one injury. Other part is just the quad being generally tight causes the um, patella to get compressed onto the um, femur. So there's a second problem. The third one is the uh, TFL gets really tight. So I look at all those sorts of injuries, whereas patella tracking, quad problems, um, all those common knee injuries, most of them are from the same sort of cause. Is it because the quads are too tight and the quads are tight on the outside? So a lot of those knee injuries, I resolve pretty well by deloading the quads um, and balancing them out through. Uh, if you've had surgery, normally after someone said knee surgery, the first muscle to turn off is the VMO. So I'll often put a few needles in there to wake that up to help with that patella tracking stuff. Um, what else did you want to sort of mention about the knees? Do you want me to go more about the quads or actual particular injuries? Um, well, I wouldn't mind talking about you like some causes of medial and lateral knee pain as yeah. well. Um, cool. I'll give you, there's so many of them. So if you look at things like everyone, people sit down all day long. So you're at your computer, you're sitting all day long. As soon as you're doing that, your rectus band, which attaches over the hip joint, shortens it. So you get that bit of an anterior pelvic tilt. Um, the next thing you're going to do is you're sitting down all day, the glutes get nice and tight and so does um, TFL get short. That runs into the ITB. So a lot of this, this sitting we do at work all day loads up the quads. Um, a lot of people that go to the gym uh, do squats because of the poor ankle movements uh, in their ankles, their squat techniques load their quads more than their actual hamstrings. So when someone does a squat, you're meant to be getting the workload through your glutes and your hamstrings more than your quads. But if you ask most people at the gym, where do they feel it? In the knees. So straight away, we're looking at that. Someone that sits down all day, someone that goes to gym do leg weights, they're loading the quads straight away. Um, the third thing of this too is just generally people doing cycling, get tight quads, and people running on treadmills. I think we might recall the last um, chat we had, I spoke about difference in treadmill running. Yep. Treadmill runners load up your quads more than your hamstrings. So a lot of the biomechanics, whether it's posture-related, whether it's just running on a treadmill, whether it's cycling a bike, signal all day, a lot of this stuff causes those quads to get over-dominant and the hamstrings don't. And as a result, the knee actually cops a lot of the loading, whether that's actually on the kneecap directly through the quads compressing it, um, whether it's through the patella tracking issues going through there. Um, they're the sort of things that load the knee up. So for me, I find you know, majority of knee quad injuries all come from similar causes. So I do the same sort of treatment, really. I try and lengthen the quads out. I try and loosen the quads out. And I try and get a bit of balance. Now, people often ask me about weights. You know, should I start doing um, some um, leg presses with my feet turned out to work more my VMO and all that? And do is open up through your hips, um, get your posture right, and work on your running technique after that. Okay. And do you would you commonly give any quad strengthening exercises in clinic? No, because what, what I actually go the other way around yep. with a lot of treatments is the quads are too dominant. So I actually get people to do a um, naughty quad stretch, really, where you kneel down, yeah. um, you switch your core on, and you actually lean back. 
Um, and what that does is it lengthens your quads and it stretches them. So it puts your quads in a um, uh, position where they've got to lengthen while still working. So I'm actually trying to open up people's hips all the time uh, to do with their daily life, you know, sitting and all that. So I don't really give much quad strengthening work at all. And in saying that, when you've got really sore hamstrings, I don't give you much hamstring stretching stuff either because the quads are the problem. So I really work on loosening the quads off, stretching the quads, foam roll the quads, spiky ball the TFL and the glutes and frame those areas. Once you free all that up, it goes um, pretty good. Like even patella um, tendonitis problems, even with the uh, Osgood sladders, like Osgood sladders for kids, it's because of the growth plate, the tibia. It's also due to the um, tight quads pulling on with the jump, jumping sports. So really, I find if you free the quads up, it resolves most things. You don't need to stretch strengthen them. We're already too dominant on the quads as we are. Because I think a lot of a lot of people still go with the odd. I'll do some seated knee extensions, focus on your VMO um, to try and strengthen that up. But you know that can be counterproductive if they're already overloaded. So that is good to know. Yeah, that uh, seated leg exercise is probably one of the worst exercises I've seen. You know, it's good. It's got a small place of rehab, and that's about it. You know, when was the last time you actually sat down and extended your knee? All you're doing is putting your kneecap on full load as you bend it to then grind it back up. Okay. So any other management strategies you'd advise for someone with overloaded quads or sore knees? Yeah. So when someone comes in with sore quads or sore knees, I'll be saying to them, look, go home, get the foam roller or the rolling pin on the quads, free that up, heat the quads. But you ice the kneecap. So we're talking about the patella before. There's a lot of inflammation gets underneath that patella. And if you get inflammation underneath the patella, it's harder to bend it. It flares up a lot. So I often give my clients the um, advice of, look, ice your knee after exercise for 10 minutes and just let the inflammation settle down. I want you to heat your quads all day long. Foam roller your quads all day long. Stretch your quads um, like I showed them, kneeling down, leaning back. Do all that. You can even do a bit of a uh, psoas hip flexor stretch and then get the spike ball and the glutes and the TFL. I think loosening that whole area and heating it works really well and then just icing around the kneecap for 10 minutes after exercise or like a long day on, on your feet okay and are there any specific running technique things you'll look for yeah so the knee's an interesting one because the knee's kind of the um middle joint really if someone's got foot ankle issues well the next place to pop the load will be the knees so you've got to get the balance right so with that, you've got to check out shoes. So when you're looking at the lower legs and that, like the shoes, how have they gone? Are they affecting the knee? The knee itself, unless an athlete is quad dominant, it should be pretty good. If they're landing poorly on the knee, it might be coming from the ankle, it might be coming from the hip, or the other thing I was saying before is about degeneration of the knee. Um, and that's the only time I get really concerned about knees is the degeneration side of it. And what about, and this is, I guess, for any of the injuries, do you commonly look at cadence? Nah, um, it's funny you say that. I had a uh, few people used to call me a few years ago and talk about my cadence. I've got short little legs that turn over really fast. Um, and people used to say to me, like, how do I get my cadence like you? You just got to run. So when we talk about cadence, cadence is just how fast your legs are moving around. If you look at an athlete like me with short legs, well, I have a quicker cadence because I've got to turn them over quicker. If you look at a taller runner, you actually have to turn them over slower. Um, the difference is for me to get faster, I can't spin my legs any quicker. I actually have to lengthen my stride. Whereas a really big runner with a big stride, for them to get faster, they then increase their cadence. So cadence is just the way you're running. So I've had people running with headsets, which is actually making the beats to their cadence. It's crazy. 
because when you look at someone's cadence, you're running uphill, downhill, you're on the flight, you're turning a corner. There's too many variables. And cadence is a very individual thing. It's like looking at how many times you breathe running around the track, how deep are your breaths. Well, it depends on how hard you're on the race and that. So cadence, I don't worry too much about. You should be a rhythm. You just run to a rhythm. And okay. once you get a bit of a rhythm going, um, and the best way you get your rhythm isn't by your legs, it's through your arms. It's your arm swing. Hmm. So the thing with that is when you run up a hill, you sh actually should shorten your arm carriage so you take smaller strides. When you run down a hill, if you lengthen your arm carriage, you drop your hands lower, you actually have a bigger stride and run faster. So you actually change your um, arm carriage and your arm swing to change your legs. Uh, if anyone at home is listening to this, you don't believe me, jog on the spot. And as you jog in there, try and move your arms really fast, but don't let, let your legs go fast. It doesn't work. Now go the other way. Try and jog really slow with your arms, but fast with, with your legs. It doesn't work. So your arms and legs are quite linked. So when you want to run, don't worry about cadence. Just get the rhythm in your arms going. Okay. There's certainly a lot of focus around cadence now. I've been listening to quite a few running injury podcasts and there's, you know, talking about ideal cadence and, you know, it's, it's hard to change. It's <laughs> really difficult. No, you, you, you don't need to change. I can tell you, I think this week I have treated five runners that went to the Olympics and not one of them works on cadence. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, all right. So jumping over maybe just to a little bit of ITB, mm. any, yeah. any things you're looking for with ITBs? Yeah. I love the ITB because the ITB normally isn't the problem itself. The ITB is a band, attaches down by the fibular head, comes up from the glutes and the TFL. So really, if anyone comes with ITB problems, um, this is great for osteos. It's a really good learning curve for treating an athlete. You get the patient standing in front of yourself. First thing you want to do is make sure the patient's level. Make sure their hips are aligned, their spine's aligned. Because if the hips are out of whack, well, the chances are their ITB is going to twist and pull as well on one side or the other. So I kind of use a structural approach with ITB, get the patient in front of myself, uh, balance them through the hips, balance them through their um, spine, all that. Then after that, I look at uh, the attachments of the ITB, uh, iliotibular band, which is... Um, TFL and glute meet and min and that's so I look at the glutes I make sure the glutes are nice and loose they're not pulling too tight I make sure TFL is nice and loose not too many trigger points through that and then the ITB runs over the lateral quad so facets lateralis I'll make sure that's nice and loose make sure that it has shown up through the hips once I've done that I'll go down towards the knee double check fibular head as well make sure that's nice and loose gets through there um, obviously if you're going to look at the fibular head you might as well shift down and look at the ankle as well because it's all attached so, yeah, ITB, hip, knee, ankle, lower back, um, glute, TFL, uh, lateral quad, uh, and then a little bit of tib anterior, maybe a little bit of perineals and lateral gastroc. Okay. If people are doing a lot of foam rolling or stretching for glutes ITB, can that cause more problems, more compression over the area, or do you think it's beneficial? No, I don't mind you... Um, doing a little bit of foam rolling over the IT, but not too much. I just find it's really painful and you're not doing, you're not achieving much. You better jump on a spiky ball for your glutes, spiky ball for your TFL, um, and a little bit of spiky ball for your quads. The best thing for TFL after that's heat, you get it nice and warm, stretch it out, open it up. That's all you got to really do. Um, just, I know some people just swear by hammering their ITBs every day for five hours just on the foam roller. Go for it. It's good. Gets you a three minutes release. But if you, if you realise they're doing that all the time it's not really fixing it's just giving them short-term relief 
So I'm looking at sort of the underlying factors there and trying to get with it all and, yeah, really opening up everything around the ITB because the ITB is a band. It, it's actually, apart from the fibula head, it runs into two other muscles. So if those two other muscles get tight, they're going to pull it tight. So that's why, for me, I loosen everything around it and its attachments and then the ITB settles down, put a bit of foam roller through it, put a bit of heat through it. But, yeah, I wouldn't be hammering the foam roller too much on that area. Okay. And what are your thoughts on... um? you know, uh, glute weakness or, or poor activation leading to, you know, crossover gait or something like that? Yeah, look, there's definitely a place for that. There's, um, glutes can definitely play a role in a couple of these issues. I think um, oh, I have a running joke with a couple of guys, but, you know, the amount of times someone's come to me after seeing another practitioner, whether it's the physio or an osteo, but every second person goes, yeah, I've got glute activation problems. I'm like, Mate, you've been running. I had a one client that came in and he was doing 500 k's a week on the bike. He'd been doing it for about five years, and he came to me and said, "Look, they're just saying my glutes aren't strong enough. They keep packing in." So, mate, you got the, you know, he had the butt the size of a bloody small rhino. He's that <laughs> conditioned to it. I just said to him, "It's not so much that you're not conditioned. You're just hammering them so much from your fitness. Loosen them off." So, I think there is a time and a place to work on the rehab of the glutes and build that up. That definitely goes on, but I think it's so overprescribed. Half the time is, as I said to you before, you go walk up a 1,000 steps, you're going to have sore calves. You go walk up 10,000 steps, they're going to be sore. Now, even if you could do that every day, they're still going to get a little bit sore. So the trick is get the massage, loosen them up, free them up. So with the glutes, there's definitely a part into it. You know, you do your sidewalks, you might do your half clams, a bit of activation, but you've got to pick up where your client's at. Is your client got sore glutes because they're not strong enough or they got sore glutes because they're training them so hard they need to be freed up okay so i guess probably the the way a lot of people would manage it would be to give you know glute rehab exercises to give clams to give crab walks that sort of stuff which again from what you're saying can be counterproductive if they're already tight and overworked so what i do in that situation i often find there's a lot of trigger points through the glutes so i actually put some needles through them and it releases them the amount of patients that come in to see me that are athletes that have got tight glutes and then i needle through their glutes and they go oh it's all gone away now i haven't strengthened their glutes in one session how have i i've just released them and i do a lot of that um if you don't do dry needling for those osteos out there no problems do some met do some inhibition with your elbows through their glutes and do hip internal external rotation with the patient prone there's a lot of ways you can free glutes up and i've been freeing glutes up long before i did dry needling i just find that dry needles work really well in getting a quick reaction but yeah inhibition um making the back nice and mobile as well helps as well but yeah I, i've needed a lot of glutes that have freed them up in one session and it's not that i've strengthened them in a day it's just that i've freed them up for them to then go and do some more training and if they train properly they'll probably tighten up again and you've got to release them again to be at the next level okay um all right the next one this is a this is one that can become really persistent and really frustrating for runners is our proximal hamstring tendinopathy yeah so it's a really tricky one and I normally put a proximal hamstring um, injury um, down to three things. The first most common reason that my patients get proximal hamstring problems is because what we spoke about before, their quads are too dominant. The quads are doing all the workload. They've got an anterior pelvic tilt. When you get an anterior pelvic tilt, you then tilt forward and the hamstrings are put on stretch. So I find that's more of an irritation thing. Um, so with some of my proximal hamstring irritations, the main thing I do is actually, again, free up the anterior hip compartment, loosen the quads, get them stretched out, 
and actually take the pressure off the hamstrings. So by releasing the front of their thighs, you take the pressure off the back of their thighs, and that hamstring settles down. That's the one that I find is the more common than not. Um, and you probably get a lot of these people that will say to you, oh, I stretched the hammer, it's just not getting any better. Yeah, it's not getting any better because it's tight. It's not tight because of any other reason, but the quad is stretching it too much. So if you keep stretching it, you're going to end up tearing it. So with patients with proximal hamstring, I reckon most of them are not even going to do hamstring stretches. They actually do all the anterior compartment first and free that up. The second reason I find causes a lot of proximal is actually glutes. Um, for those that uh, can picture in their mind, the top of the glute muscles, glute max, runs over the top of the hamstring. So when the glutes get really tight, e.g. you've been sitting down all day, they attach over the top of the hamstring. Doing sport, if those glutes are tight, they keep pushing over the top of the um, hamstrings, their attachment. So again, I get back to the glutes, free the glutes up, loosen that up, get into the piriformis, make sure that's not triggering any of the sciatic responses as well. Free all that area up and then it's really good to go. Same thing there. I'll stretch the quads. I'll stretch the piriformis. I'll stretch the glutes. Foam roller quads, spiky ball, glutes. And I don't actually do much to the hamstring except do a bit of a massage or put some heat through it and keep it nice and loose. Then the third thing is the hamstring itself. If you've done a bit of damage to it, then I might look at checking the, uh, the belly of the hamstring, loosening that up. Maybe it is needs to be a little bit of a stretch. But again, that's not too common. Okay. So what about any exercises? So I reckon one of the things, if it is actually the hamstring problem itself, I love the Nordics. So the hamstring yep. Nordics where you're sort of kneeling and you go down and come back. I just think that's a ripper of a thing. It actually gets it nice and strong and nice and stretched. So that's probably the main hamstring thing I do. Um, there's about two or three other hamstring exercises I do that are body weights. Um, so whether it's single-legged um, stuff or that. But, yeah, so there's a, probably a range of strength conditioning, I guess I should call it, uh, exercises that I've used in the past, which I've taken my clients through. I'm just fortunate because of my sports science degree, I've sort of done that. Um, and, again, too, that's about all you need to do is strengthen up, do that sort of stuff. But understand why that top of that hamstring is under load. And the second part, too, is if it is under load, you've got to be just check for actually if it becomes a chronic response. There's one thing me treating an acute hamstring, freeing it up, getting it moving, but if it's come under a bit more of a chronic response, you might find suddenly the attachment or the bursts are now starting to get inflamed and therefore you've got to be more gentle and they take a little bit longer. So an acute hamstring is a lot easier to rehab. A chronic one can be a little bit slower. Uh, and hamstrings generally, just by the nature of them, I find I'll rehab them longer and get people back doing things slower than I would other parts of the body, just because I know they can flare straight back up again. Okay. And what about any other home management tips for, you know, the proximal hamstring tendinopathy in terms of like icing, heating hamstring or, um, you know, issues with sitting on it can be quite painful to be sitting for prolonged periods. Yep. So I'll say to a lot of my clients, definitely, you know, if the actual, the, the burst is flared up, you want to put it ice, but I generally get people to sit on heat, use a lot of heat through the area. The only thing I tell them is the deeper you sit down into a chair, the more load that's put to that proximal hamstring. So sit higher on a bar stool rather than sit down on a low chair. If you've got a bar stool, sit on the bar stool, sit on the side of the bed, uh, the bed, and you want your leg not bent as much either. So if you can have your leg a little bit straighter, it just takes the load off that hamstring. Um, the way I kind of apply to a lot of my clients, so imagine you're wearing a really super pair of tighter jeans. How keen do you want to sit deep in a, in a um, seat with those jeans on? Not very, because you know you're going to tear them. Same with your hammy. It's that tight. If it's causing you that much pain, just try and be straighter as you can to take the load off it. 
um, heat it, and then slowly do some rehab. Whether that's like a um, on your back, you do some uh, Swiss ball hamstring curls if you're up to that stage, single legged squat sort of stuff. Um, I've got a couple of exercises that I've made up names for, but there's a few exercises I'll do that which sort of take them through a rehab program. But yeah, generally I find heating the hamstring is much better. But again, the key is often offloading the quads, the TFL, the glutes, all those areas, take the pressure off the hamstring. I'd say, you know, seven out of 10 times, the hamstring isn't the main problem. So that's why my home rehab for hamstrings is heated and keep it happy. Okay. With, with a bit of quad stretching, how would you, or do you generally advise like a, a you know, a static prolonged stretch or more of a dynamic mobilization type of activity? Oh, yeah, brilliant question. No, brilliant. It's, um, I try and make things as practical as I can for the patient because uh, if I don't, the chance of them doing it in the long term isn't great. So with the quads, it's about the only stretch I get people to do. I say, look, you do four reps in the morning, four reps at night, you kneel down. I often get them to kneel on a pillow or a towel or a softer surface just so their patella isn't ground into the ground. So look after their knees, hold your core, lean back for 30 seconds and build up to a minute. So I'll be saying four in the morning of 30 seconds to a minute holds, four at night, and if anything after, that's a bonus. So that's what I'll be doing sort of for those sort of exercises with stretching through through the quads. And the okay. Yeah. Okay, that's a good one. Okay. How about how about a bit of plantar fasciitis now? I treated one today. So one of the runners came with that. And um, plantar fasciitis is really good. So I go back to what causes it again. Um, if the athletes uh, running, been running really well and they start to get plantar fasciitis, it's often overuse, which means they're either hitting the ground a little bit harder or they've really upped their load. Uh, so with a lot of athletes, when they start putting on spikes, so the actual, um, their shoes change. They get from a supportive shoe or cushioned shoe to a shoe that's actually not very cushioned. Um, it's just a hard plate, really. It loads up the plantar fascia tip posterior load. So my treatment for that's pretty basic. I make sure talus, the subtalus joints are really loose. The midfoot's really loose. Um, I was saying the other week how, you know, the plantar fasciitis attaches to the calcaneus. Well, so does Achilles. So there's a bit of a tug of war through there. So when I'm looking at plantar fasciitis, I'm also looking at Achilles, um, soleus, gastric muscles. I make sure um, the subtalus joint's quite good as well. Often that starts to invert. So I manage that. Um, do a bit of ma- massage through tip posterior, a little bit of massage through um, the plantar fascia. I'll do adjustments to the midfoot, do adjustments to the talus. Uh, and then the young man I treated today got the pleasure of getting three needles through um, his plantar fascia. Um, <laughs> our good friend, John Marshall, he uh, taught me that technique. So he does a lot of the dry needling with his Chinese medicine. Um, so, yeah, they've got three needles. And I just find the needling of the plantar fascia for the right patients is unbelievable. But again, you've got to realize I had an athlete in today, so his feet are quite strong. The muscles, he's quite good. It's a total different plantar fascia to somebody that's been um, not doing much exercise and they come in with plantar fasciitis because theirs often isn't used to um, being overtrained. It's just due to lack of conditioning. So therefore, I'd probably change it around a little bit. Okay. Do you find, would you commonly give, um, you know, calf and plantar fascia strengthening exercises? So with um, the young athlete that I had today, I wouldn't give him too many exercises to do because he's just from just training, like overuse. He's just jumping. He's just getting faster. With someone that was maybe due to deconditioning or just a normal runner, 
what I'd probably do there is um, do the old exercise. They've got a bare feet, um, pick the tail up with their toes. So I'm trying to get them to strengthen the muscles in their feet. So that's where, again, with plantar fascia, I ease them into doing some walking on some soft surfaces barefoot, whether it's uh, the carpet, whether it's some grass, things like that. So I try and get their feet muscle strength working to help take the load off it. Um, and then same thing, if I think it's due to their uh, lower leg and generally is deconditioned, whether it's calf, soleus, tip posterior, um, I might get them to do some calf races or I might get them just to do a little bit of walk jogging to help strengthen it up. And a massive thing with um, plantar fasciitis is footwear. So again, I'll be speaking to people when you go through the whole case history and you come back to it and you realise they've been wearing heels for the last two nights or <laughs> they've been doing something crazy. You know, they've gone and done about three athletics events in a week where they've worn spikes for 10,000 metres. So you just got to also check what causes it again. Like, is it due to something they've done? And if, and if it is something they've done, often you're just trying to settle it down. If it's a conditioning thing, then I'm giving some strength work of their whole lower leg. With the intrinsic foot muscle strengthening, so you, you do something like, you know, picking up the towel and dragging. Yep. What what are we talking sort of sets and reps and sets for that? Yeah. So I'll just say to you, okay, in the, the day, what I want you to do when you go home, drop a towel on the floor and I want you to pick it up four times. And I show them how to pick it up. And often they can't even activate their toes to do it. Their toes have just got no strength at all. So I'll sit there and try and do some triggers to get them to actually turn it on. And they'll just do maybe it for twice a minute so two by one minute yep. um a day and okay. once again they'll get really good at it. and they know they go, i can now do that then i'll say to them i might want you to do a bit of um just walking around the room barefoot then i want you doing some jogging around the room so i might say look just walk around your house if it's got carpet or go outside and if you're going for a 8k run can you stop at you know 7k and jog the last kilometer or the last two laps barefoot and then and you just got to build it up slowly in, in the settling down phase, what do you recommend with footwear? So if they're commonly walking around the house barefoot in thongs, Ugg boots, that sort of thing, do you advise them to be wearing supportive shoes as much as they can or do you think it's beneficial for them to be barefoot? So it's, um, no, I, generally I want, I want them to do the exercises barefoot, then get some supportive shoes on. What's been really good before is um, you get to an Australian summer, what are the chances of you getting someone out of their thongs? It's almost near impossible. Um, so what's good these days, though, is there's actually a few brands of thongs like um, Archie and a couple of others where they've actually got thongs with some general arch support. Have you, ever, have you seen them come across them before? Yeah. Woofies, whatever they're called? Yeah. So I'd say good. if you've got to wear your thongs, wear that. Wear, wear your thongs and you know, those songs will help you. Otherwise, wear your runners. And the patient will tell you straight away, I'll go, well, how's it been going? Oh, yeah, you know, I was being bare fit this week on my thongs and it's got really bad. So if if the bare feet are really playing up in terms of bad thongs and walking on bare feet too much, the patient will tell you it's really hurting them. I've just, I've just had a brilliant idea. This could be our way to make million, millions and now I'm going to share it with everyone. We should make some Ugg boots with arch support. Why has nobody done this? Or have I just not seen them? We did like orthopedic Ugg boots. So what I have with uh, my clients that want to wear Ugg boots or they want to wear that sort of stuff, I say just go get a uh, basic sports orthotic. Yeah. 30 bucks and just chuck them in there. So you could do that. Just get your Ugg boots inside a uh, sports orthotic in there. And it makes the world a difference for them. Okay. Well, that's not going to make me any money, but that is a good idea. Um, All right. What about icing and, um, you know, ball release or massage? 
Yeah, so spiky ball through the plantar fascia is really good. Um, otherwise, you could have a uh, frozen um, bottle of water in a Coke bottle in the freezer, pull that out and rub that. A bit like I said with the icing cup for tip posterior. So that's really good, going along those areas. Um, you just got to make sure you don't annoy the bursa at the heel there. That's what also does it. Um, people often tell you about spurs in the heels. You know, I've got a spur in my heel and that's why I've got plantar fasciitis. I go, well, hang on, how long you had plantar fasciitis? Oh, two weeks. How long you had this x-ray? I was done four years ago. So the spur can maybe annoy it, but it was not causing it either. So I say to people, just loosen up with the ball, spike your ball, do that. But you don't want to overdo it either. You want to get things nice and loose and don't roll on the heel. Um, you can even tape it off fine. Some people find if they actually tape their arch, it really helps. Um, but then you get skin irritation. How long do you want to tape your arch for? So I just find that if you've got all the time in the world, just ease back into it, take your time. But if you're racing or you've got stuff to do, you often use tapes to sort of help you limp on through. Mm. And I guess the problem with the taping is the longer you're offloading it for, the more deconditioned the tissues going to come. So you know, it's just a, it's a bit of a worsening cycle, isn't it? I mean, that's sort of what I did with my plantar fascia. I was like, oh, I'll just keep taping it for ages. And um, then it just became worse and worse and worse. Well, the thing with plantar fasciitis, the biggest limiting factor is pain. Because at the end of the day, you can snap your plantar fascia, fascia and keep on going. It's not going to do anything to you. Um, for all those old footballers out there, was Robert Harvey who played for St Kilda. He um, jumped off a table to snap his plantar fascia because he wanted to play footy that week and it was just causing him too much pain. He snapped it and kept playing. So really, plantar fascia, the main limiting factor with that is actually pain. And what's your thought on orthotics if people want to pursue getting orthotics? Yeah, I'm pretty strong in my thoughts on orthotics. I always have been. I reckon there's a time and a place for them. I think orthotics, if they're prescribed for the right reason, are amazing. They're really good. Patash uh, do a really good job. They give you the orthotics works really well. But I also think they're overprescribed so often that someone goes, oh, look, you've been running there and, you know, you've got a really sore foot, we're going to give some orthotics. You go, hang on, it's a tip post tear is really tight or her ankle's locking up. It's an overload injury. So resolve that, what she's getting the orthotics for. And I've had clients before that have come to me and said, I've had orthotics for the last three years. So, okay, what have you had them for? Shin splints, cool. What are you here to see me for? Shin splints. Well, what are your orthotics doing? I go, what do you mean? I go, well, you come to see me with shin splints for what the orthotics seem to be fixing. Oh, you haven't really noticed. Well, other clients have said to me, I've got orthotics. I just wear them in my, the shoes that I walk in. I go, well, how about the shoes you got to work in? No, how about your owners? No, just my walking shoes. So you're wearing them one-tenth of the time. What are they doing? Um, so I think orthotics is a really good time and a place for them. Um, but I also think they're a bit over-prescribed because they're just given to people that shouldn't get them. And they cause other trouble, uh, other problems later on. Because I'm not sure how many people are going to be roaming around the Australian summers wearing closed shoes all the time with orthotics in them. And do you do you ever, well, do you think the running strike pattern can play an important role in the development of plantar fascia, plantar fasciitis? Yeah. Again, if you're wearing the wrong shoes, if you're wearing a shoe that's uh, pronated when you should be neutral or vice versa, the chances are you're going to be landing on the wrong party foot and rolling the wrong way. So you're going to annoy something, whether that's your Achilles copping the load, whether that's your plantar fascia copping the load, whether that's the big joint of your first toe or the subtalus or the knee. So I definitely think um, plantar fasciitis can be caused from poor shoes. It can be caused from poor technique. It can be caused from overtraining. So a lot of different things lead to it. 
but I don't think it's a hard thing to fix that, you know, get someone in the right shoes on the right program, get them to sort of stretch their calves, spike your ball through their feet, and you should be pretty good. Okay. How do we determine, well, somebody asks, what runner should I buy? How do you approach this? Um, really, again, I'm in Melbourne, so it's really straightforward. Where I'm in Melbourne, um, I've got to meet a couple of guys and the girls at um, the running companies, uh, and they do a brilliant job. There's one in Clifton Hill, um, where not far from where I live. Um, there's a fair few around where I am, and they do a sensational job. So I'm always able to refer them to one of those places if I'm not quite sure. Uh, the second part is I can see them. I've been running now and coaching for over 20 years. So I can see how people run. I can observe and say, they're good shoes for you. They're not good for you. I had a guy in yesterday who had his shoes that he's had for the last nine months. And I said, you shouldn't be wearing them. You need a neutral shoe because of the way you walk and you roll. So for me, it's a bit of a skill that I've picked up. Most osteos out there, um, it's really getting to know people that you can work with, with these skills. You can't be expected to know everything. You can't be expected to do everything. So my recommendation was, is, um, you know, go speak to one of the guys that are running companies, one of those shops or someone that knows a lot about this running and learn from them. You know, it's really good that I'm comfortable sending people because I know they do a good job. Whereas um, about five years ago, I wasn't doing that. And the reason that is, is because there's a few people going to different um, running shops to get shoes, other running shops. And the people behind the counter had deals with the shoe companies. You know, if you sell... 10 pairs of my shoe, whether it's Nike, Adidas, whatever it is, I'll give the bloke selling the shoe a free pair. So guess what they were given? Everyone, those shoes. And that really annoyed me because I had clients going there to get fitted by so-called experts and they weren't getting fitted properly. Um, so, yeah, I think with getting the shoes fitted, they're really important because it can lead to injuries very quickly. So you need the right shoes on. But you can't ask the average osteo to understand what shoes they should wear in time they can with a bit more experience but for now go see some experts to help you with that area and don't be afraid once lockdown closes um opens up and you can actually go there go spend a couple of days or a couple of hours ask the uh guys can we just come observe how you fit people with shoes so i i can learn i can see what you're looking for and it's good for those um shoe shops too because you can refer people to them and you can say look go see whoever at the running company there and um they'll look after you um, right. you know the, the there's a really good group in Lilydale. There's um, just memory. There's Clifton Hill. There's some in Geelong, Albert Park. Uh, I can't remember. There's another two. I think there's one in Q as well. Ah, uh, so yeah, so that's uh, the running world Q. They're really good as well. That's a different company. Yeah, that's the running world. They're great as well. Okay. So I know about seven shops, and if you ask to go observe them for just a couple of hours, you can learn what they're doing. It'd be really good. Okay. Is there anything else you just want to add on to sort of round off our injury discussion? Yeah. Any, any um, probably the probably the main injury that you've, I reckon you've probably left out a bit here is Achilles. Oh, yeah. A lot yeah. of runners get Achilles problems. And I just think, again, Achilles problem is often an overuse injury. Um, it works uh, with a lot of calf tightness. It works with a lot of overrunning. Um, yes, unfortunately, there is the old man calves that comes and plays with Achilles as well. But they're the ones you've got to be careful so you don't rupture them too because if you rupture them, if anyone saw the Olympics with the um, Genevieve Lacraz or Genevieve Gregson now in the uh, steeplechase, that ruptures, you've got major surgery. So I think the Achilles are the really interesting ones. Um, the, a lot of Achilles is, again, is from loading. So the athlete will come to you, 
So you've got to look at their loading, make sure they're not overtraining, doing it too hard. But once you get a bad Achilles, it can be really tricky to look, manage and treat. And I think there's so much information out there on the Achilles, good and bad, that you can get a bit lost in it. Um, so I just find with the Achilles, remember the soleus, gastroc are really important. Um, the ankle joint, talus, subtalus, really important. Um, the plantar fascia, again, can play a big role in it, the way the person's landing. Footwear has a big thing to do with it. So I think with the Achilles, it's probably the most complicated of all of the uh, lower leg injuries um, to get right at times. And it's much better to an Achilles, if you're not sure, I'd pull that one back more than anything because once mm. they become chronic, they become really hard to um, fix. Where So if you had someone with a chronic Achilles problem that you thought needed rehab program, is that mm -hmm. something you would manage yourself or would you refer that on? I definitely do it myself. Start off by um, offloading because I like, yeah, like my, sorry, my, my serious face comes in a lot more with Achilles just to make sure we get on top of them early. So you get on top of an Achilles problem early, it goes away and you're laughing. It's when they hang around, they come really troublesome. Um, I've got an Achilles problem myself and that's because when I was younger, um, people treating me didn't get onto it early enough or good enough, but I've learned how to manage them really well. So I'll do the rehab program. Achilles is quite funny because at times I'll be saying to my clients, I know it's a bit sore, push through it. So that's one of the ones I'll say push through certain areas of it too with their rehab to get it nice and strong uh, and then management pretty well. So I'd start the rehab and if I got really sort of full into rehab, that's when I might refer them to, you know, one of the strength and conditioning coaches I've got there. I mentioned Kate last week, so she might take over and do some strength and work with that sort of stuff. Um, or I might also send them to someone like Andrew White, my massage therapist here, um, to do a lot more work or even cat who I've got here and they just do a lot of the soft tissue to free it up. So it's a bit of a combination. You've got to be careful of the bursa there. There's other options like getting sports doctors in, whether they give you a, a cortisone in the area, which I don't normally like, um, PRP injections, things like that. So there's also a few other options. If it is not going well, you can maybe try a few other uh, things like injections and that. And do you normally start with doing, you know, the heavy isometrics? and you know progressing them into you know hopping programs and doing plyometrics yeah it, it, it you're doing you don't it depends where they've come from again like have they got a sore achilles because they're running really well and they've overloaded it um so um at the last olympics i was treating uh, morgan mitchell and she's had an achilles problem so the way we managed hers before the olympics is different to how we manage it after the Olympics. because before the olympics we're trying to get you to the start line you know your achilles is playing up we're trying to manage it you're still trying to do the load of training. Whereas after the Olympics, suddenly we've got all this time to get it right for her. So you've got to look at what stage of it is too. And then also to how much damage has been done. Is it um, the change is chronic or they just acute? Can you reverse them? Um, do you need to break things down too? Because sometimes you get a bit of scar tissue in there. You've got to break it down. So really a lot of Achilles are quite different for their causes. And that's why I find Achilles can be a bit tricky because it's not one glove fits all. You've got to really make it individualized for people um, as into how the Achilles is itself, along with what's caused it and their training loads and their ages and things like, like that. With a tendinopathy type injury where it's generally sore and stiff at the beginning of a run and then it eases off. Yep. And you want your patient to keep doing some running. Would you generally get them doing, you know, a small run and then walk, sort of run and then walk? or to sort of gently push through? How, how do you yeah. manage that? Generally with most athletes, when they come back into it, they either do a walk 
jog program where they build up to do more jogging as they get stronger and less walking. Or some of them, like they just start off, like if you see me run some days, my Achilles, I can start off at like a 5.30 first K, six minute first K. And by the time I get to the fourth K, I'm a minute quicker. So mine, mine warms up and gets going, but I also know my Achilles is chronic with my tendinopathy. Other times I've had a um, glute tendinopathy, it's just killed me. So I've actually just deloaded it completely, let it rested, needed the glutes, offloaded the glutes, settled it down. I was back running within a week, back to another 100 Ks. So the tendons really come down to, were they chronic, are they acute? And also to how much is it affecting your biomechanics, your gait? Because the last thing you want to do is, you've seen, I spoke before about Jen LaCrae snapping her Achilles. She actually snapped a good one. She had injuries with the other one for 12 months managing it. But over 12 months of managing it, she kept putting load on the other leg. And that's what snapped it. The same with these tendon things. With my clients, I often say, look, let's just warm it up, get going. Um, you know, let's say, Em, you've got a uh, tendon problem, right? I'll be saying to you, when you first jump out of bed, how much do you want to go for a run? You're pretty sore. So if you have the option, get moving around the house food before you start doing exercise so it's warmed up. Okay. And what's your sort of acceptable level of discomfort? either during or, or post run or next morning you know do you sort of say okay it's got to be less than a four out of ten for you to sort of keep progressing you know what's your sort of acceptable yeah. level of post discomfort it comes down to the client <laughs> and the reason why i laugh is because i've got some clients i just sort of lean my elbow into their glute knee and they're jumping through the roof like someone died I've got others that have got my elbow fully going through trying to break their glute and they just don't flinch. They go, yeah, it's pretty painful. So it really comes, you you know, you've got to work out what part of the body's sore, but also to what the client's doing, you know, like in terms of how much is it really sore and how much it isn't. Because I've had clients say to me, that's eight out of 10. I'm like, shit, so I've got two more to a 10 out of 10, the worst pain ever. And they're like, yeah. And all they've had is a sprained calf. <laughs> So you got to, yeah. that's what I mean. Like how much pain can someone handle? I guess I come down to is, yeah, just saying to them, like how much do they want to run? And then if they really want to run heaps um, and, and they're not running, you might say it's pretty bad. But if someone's kind of like, oh, look, I'm only going to run if I feel magnificent, it's hard too. So the pains with these tendons, again, it depends where it is. Like I know when I've had um, patella tendonitis that once I've warmed up, it's been good. But I've also known with patella tendonitis, if I go too slow, it hurts. If I go too fast, it hurts. So there's a certain pace that I've got to run. And I was finding when I had my patella tendonitis that if I ran around about four-minute K pace, which to me is not just cruising, it felt really good. But if I jogged at my 430s, it hurt. And if I tried to run my 310s for a session, it hurt. So I had to find myself go, well, I'm just going to do shorter runs and a little bit quicker because it doesn't hurt and I manage it. So pain-wise, you generally say it's a, you know, a ballpark rule for them. Look, if, as long as it's not over six or seven out of 10, you should be okay. But even then, injuries can change really quick. If you asked Jenna Crass before she snapped her Achilles, how was it at the start of the race? She probably would have said to you, it's a three out of 10. Okay. Because she's um, used yeah. to it. She's, you know, she's done so much running on a sore Achilles to her, it's just another day. The only good thing about having injuries is we learn <laughs> so much more from it. You do. There's a, probably a, a really common injury in running that a lot of people miss. Have you heard of Haglund's deformity before? I have, but I so that's can't the remember what it is. So what that is, that's where the um, calcaneus, the heel bone, gets extra bone growth. 
And that only started coming in around about the 80s, common in runners, because in their shoes, they started putting a plastic cup in the heel. And what happens is, is that plastic cup rubs against people's heel. And what, when you rub on bone, it causes more bone to be laid down. Now, when that more bone causes to lay down, it causes this bump, which the Haglund's deformity. But over that deformity, there's a bursa and the Achilles tendon. So a lot of runners in the last 20, 30 years had this Haglund's deformity, which has caused a lot of Achilles problems and problems like that. Um, and one foot is normally slightly bigger than the other. So it normally happens in the slightly bigger foot because it rubs against the shoe. Um, <coughs> I've found that injury people miss so often. And if it gets bad enough, you actually need surgery to have it repaired. I've had a couple of people have it done this year. So for those out there, if you sort of want to do something different, look up Haglund's deformity and start looking for it in your runners because you'll start to see it preparing and it often swells and gets better and um, worse. But they're ones to keep an eye out for because <coughs> if, excuse me, if they keep getting worse, well, they end up having to get surgery on it. Surgery as in to shave down the extra bone growth? Yeah, they, so they'll actually have to chip it out. But the problem is the Achilles tendon attaches over it. And so yeah. the bone surface is quite smooth. So I've had a couple of Australian runners head over to Sweden to get it done because those um, surgeons there, you know, 15, 20 years ago was doing a particular surgery that worked, whereas in Australia it wasn't quite good. Now there's a couple in Australia doing this surgery, which is really, really good. Okay. Well, that's a good thing to look out for. Thank you. Well, that has been a very informative interview. Thank you, Steve, for taking the time out of your busy Friday. Um, and sharing your expertise with us again. It's been really fantastic. Thank you. No, my pleasure. I hope it's helped. And uh, if, if anyone wants to you know any more information on a particular injury, just sort of let you know and we can always talk about it in the future. Fantastic. I've certainly learned a lot and I know everyone else will. So thank you again, Steve. Pleasure. The content discussed in each episode is the opinion of the participants only and should not be used as medical advice.